So, hi everyone, we're Roby and Emma, and you're, you're listening to, to Zoology <laughs> Ramblings episode two. <laughs> okay, that kind of works. Yeah, I don't know how that's going to sound on recording. So, hello, this is Roby and Emma, and you're listening to Zoology Ramblings episode two. <laughs> yeah, so we hope you enjoyed our first um, episode we did last week. Um, we're going to stick with the same structure, so we're doing an animal of the week each, and then global conservation issue, and then a local UK one. So do you want to say what you're doing this week, Roby? Yes, so today I have gone, uh, well, this week, I have gone on a ungulate uh, rampage, and so I'm going to do the high arctic camel, which is a paleo species of camel, uh, because we all love a bit of paleontology. I wanted originally to be a paleontologist before I wanted to do zoology. Fun fact about me. Um, and then for my global conservation news, I'm going to talk about Tragulus versicolor, the silverbacked chevrotain of Vietnam. That is very cool. It is indeed very cool. Love an ungulate. Love an ungulate, yeah. <laughs> So yeah, I'm going to do about mobular rays, um, which are these awesome things that look a bit like manta rays that you get um, in the Gulf of Mexico. And my global conservation issue is going to be the pangolin um, wildlife trade, because that's been in the news quite a lot. Um, I don't know, did we want to start just kind of, we both watched that programme yeah. yeah, I mean, the other the other thing with our UK uh, topic for this week is going to be curlews in the UK. Uh, so that's going to be the last thing we chat about. But yes, before we get into all the exciting uh, camels and rays and pangolins, uh, I'm sure other people listening will have watched Attenborough's last documentary. So did we watch it last night? Um, yes, it was last night, actually, I think, or the night before, possibly. The night before, yeah. Yeah, but it's for those of you who didn't watch it, it's called Extinction The Facts and it's on BBC One at the moment. If you haven't watched it, would so recommend you catch up. It's really, really powerful, um, presented by David Attenborough. Um, the God himself. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He has to, he's an immortal human. I think he can't, <laughs> can't ever die. So, yeah, I thought it was a fantastic documentary. Um, what did you think about it? Because I picked up a couple of interesting little bits and bobs. I mean, I was, I thought it was very powerful the way that they did it. Um, because I think it just kind of highlighted how a lot of those issues have been a concern or something that hit, like we've been trying to advocate for change or scientists have for the last couple of decades. So it's been like 20, 30 years and it's kind of, now the pandemic has made a lot of people open their eyes to the issues that that we are causing um and how just everything's all one big connected system um and if we how we don't change that's going to have really really serious knock-on effects yeah i loved it i loved i loved the way that he pitched it as as diverse as biodiversity was the key issue and then he explored all the different ways that we're impacting this and i thought that was a really kind of ordered and really nice kind of structured way of exploring it because a lot of the time you know in the media and stuff we just hear about oh extinction everything's dying and the amazon's on fire and you know yada 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 but it's very hard to unpick the cause the problem the solution and i thought that was a really nice way of you know having loss of biodiversity is the big thing and then explaining that actually 
the prop the causes of this are cattle ranching and pollution and plastics and overfishing and stuff that was really good um the really interesting thing i thought was when he talked about soy which is often touted as a you know a sustainable alternative to um other bio oils and i thought really notable was the fact that there wasn't any um mention of palm oil uh what did you think about that because i thought that was obviously palm oil is such a controversial issue because there's no easy solution it is the most efficient bio oil and it does feed asia we can't just boycott palm oil we can't get rid of it like that so i thought it was a really yeah a, a really interesting pivot to actually talk about another kind of bio oil on this documentary yeah no i did find that um that interesting and i thought it was quite effective as well because they did have panning shots of palm oil plantations mm. and they also had people cutting palm yeah. oil into a tub but, but they never mentioned yeah, it it wasn't actually mentioned and i think i i, I like the the focus of it how it was on a whole scope of things so it wasn't just about human consumption what they were in, interesting saying about the soy was just how much of that is actually used for animal feed and yeah. things like that yeah. so that that was quite powerful how they were linking that into the agriculture and like the the dairy industry as well yeah the really nice the really nice bit of research which i then went and looked at actually after watching it is um oh i can't remember the name there were these people from uh, it's, i don't know if it's the leibniz institute um they were looking at actually put putting the putting the pieces of the puzzle together and seeing who is the big buyers of um these uh, oils in south america and western africa and uh, southeast asia who is actually what where's the demand going and i thought it was really interesting that obviously so much goes to china which we kind of knew but I, what i was really interested in how much actually goes to the eu as well yeah and i also i found that graphic very impressive as well you know where they were sort of showing where we're getting everything from in the world yeah um, and kind of showing how the UK people might think this is someone else's problem this is the de developing world's problem but the UK aren't innocent in this and I thought it was really good that they made people aware of that so that graphic where it showed where we're importing soy and various other products from is that pocket in the Amazon mm. um, or sort of that that area of the world which, which is not sustainable yeah um that was that was a really nice point that even though which i think is very often lost in like the modern discourse about global biodiversity loss that even though your country may not be a massive industrial country you know we're quite post industrial country we're not massively producing food on such a scale but it's only because we've shifted the the problem elsewhere and so it's only because we can outsource these industries that we're not thinking ourselves as the problem but we're very much because we're the demand we're very much still complicit in it yeah no definitely agree and i think i was quite impressed actually because on channel 4 news um the the following evening mm. um the headline was all about the the biodiversity and the climate crisis that was their main news story oh, and they, were, they mentioned extinction the facts the program they were based in a wetland they were talking to sort of wetland specialists and um environmental economists like it was so good the fact that that was their main story i think shows that people are maybe starting to wake up a little bit because before it was they never really said anything in the news yeah 
And it was well, the other interesting thing I noticed, which I'm sure as well you, you, you must have picked up on, is the animals they chose to show in each one. Like there wasn't the charismatic megafauna that we typically see. I didn't think there were any tigers in that, no pandas. I didn't see any elephants. They had the giant anteater, which I knew was endangered, but I had no idea you know how how badly it was threatened the pangolin which we all know is is very very threatened and what was the um there was another one i remember thinking oh that's an interesting collection of animals to showcase because you know there weren't the big eye catches it wasn't save the whales it wasn't save the tigers um oh i thought i wrote them down i completely forgotten there was another one um orcas in the uk oh that was shocking yeah is it pcb is that what it's called pbc some something like that and bm um just the amount that was in our own waters and people think that we've got some of the like sort of most well-maintained healthy water systems and there was an orca that was completely infertile and that's sort of just accumulation up the food chain it just shows you what what happens if we have pollutants and things like that in the food in food webs and I think the really sad thing about that is obviously we've only got one resident pod of orca and that, that they've been the only resident pod for some time now. Um, and I think in that documentary, it mentions there's eight. Uh, but even since that documentary was made and the script was written, I think they're now down to three. I, really? think, I think there's only in the UK, I think there's only or maybe this is the Shetland pod I'm thinking about. I think there's only three left, two males and a female, because the two males made a weird trip to Ireland over lockdown. They just popped up for the first time. Um, but yeah, it, the scale of it all and the speed at which this change can happen is astonishing, you know? Yeah, it really is. And I just, what I found quite positive about it was how they were saying, this is a rare moment in history where we actually have the time to rethink how we want to redesign our world for the future we're not going to well hopefully we're not going to have this kind of pause in all aspects of our life again and i kind of well, i wouldn't bet on it yeah. <laughs> the way it's going now the planet no um but i don't know this is such a big moment that we could change the way that things work and i just hope that governments and people in power use this opportunity mm. um but I, what I did like, yeah, as you say, I did like how 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 they emphasised that actually nature can back can bounce back rather quickly, and I thought that was a good a good um, uh, a good addition in that obviously a lot of people, especially if you're not a specialist in in environmental science or natural science, I mean I get overwhelmed by the amount of environmental news that comes out saying we're all going to die and the planet's on fire, yada yada yada, and obviously that's true. Um, but I think too little do we see stories where you get a more positive, oh, look, if we do make this change, odds are that ecosystem will recover. Um, and so I thought that was a really nice way of making that documentary just that little bit more powerful to the vast majority of people who maybe, OK, I don't know. I have no evidence to back that up. But, you know, the people who are overwhelmed by all the terrible news as I am like all the time by the amount of stuff that just comes out like that yeah and I think it also took the I don't know what the right word is I, I guess the pressure it took the pressure off of individuals a little bit because there's so much of like you need to change this you need to change that you individually need to do that and like you say it's it's overwhelming because there's so much that needs to change but I liked how they had 
how you can change as an individual, but also how that needs to be backed up by by policy and legally binding things in the government. So it's not just you. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was a very, uh, you know, it wasn't that subtle when uh, he, he said, yes, policy needs to needs to change. Will it change or something like that? And you get a shot of uh, the buffoon in chief Boris coming out of number 10 and Trump walking down the runway. And I thought, oh, just get Bolsonaro in there and you'll have the big three. Yep. <laughs> would definitely recommend it so that was extinction the facts presented by david attenborough if you haven't watched it um would really recommend it it aired on i think it was sunday the 13th of september i think 2020 so yeah i don't know why i said 2020 you will presumably all be listening to this in this year so yeah maybe not yeah. might get listeners in the future you don't know yeah so emma do you want to dive in and tell us about the animal of the week yep sounds good so my animal of the week is mobular rays um and they're they're absolutely wonderful um, animals. And so they look a bit like manta rays. So you've probably all seen them. They're kind of diamond shaped, um, have quite a long tail as well. Are they, uh, is, are they mobular or modular? Mobular. Oh, shoot. I've been calling them modular rays the whole time. No, I spelled it wrong so many times today. Already. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I always kind of thought, do they have modules? Like, are they compartmentalised? they're you know a small colonial species like what is happening here <laughs> no i've spelled it wrong so many times but it is mobula with with a b, mobula um, with a b. i feel like an idiot now <laughs> don't worry i spelled it wrong too um but so they're in the same sort of class as um other cartilaginous fish so things like shark they it's part of the chondrichthines um love a latin name yeah <laughs> i know you love a good no one. i love a latin name so much <laughs> <laughs> and they're fantastic because they're also known as flying mobula or flying rays and it's generally because they look like they're flying they have this behavior which is still not fully um understood by scientists but they breach um so kind of like you see um, whales do they'll completely come out of the water and because they've got these hmm? <laughs> that should definitely definitely be <laughs> on the soundtrack of blue planet three <laughs> yes um but because they have these long fins it looks like wings so if you saw one and just glanced over you might think it was a bird or even a bat that's just that's how big their their fins are um and they just they die jump out of the water and you hear them before you see them it's like a massive flop it sounds like someone jumps into a pool and does a belly flop it's the weirdest thing um, you've actually seen this haven't you yeah i saw them for the first time this christmas um so that was in in baja california um in <laughs> mexico and you that's the thing i heard them before i saw them and you just hear this slapping i'm like what who's slapping who like what is happening and you get when they're feeding or when it's the breeding season you get these massive um aggregations of them in the hundreds and in in the thousands um so there's sort of these images and, and videos of them all in the water so kind of ominous if you look at them from below like these dark shadows moving um and then apparently they're all jumping out everywhere and so 
There are a couple of reasons why they think they might do it, but it is very unusual behaviour. Um, so they think it could possibly be for mate attraction, um, communication, um, removal of parasites was an interesting one that I found. <laughs> they had things attached to them. If they just yeet out the water, then they're going <laughs> to lose a lot of the parasites. Is that the scientific name for this mode of locomotion? Um, mobular ray yeeting? <laughs> <laughs> I think it should be. Um, it would be interesting if that was like a mate attraction device though because obviously you know most vertebrate species sexual attraction is like a, a physical thing so the tusks on an elephant the tail of the peacock but this is actually a behavioral yeah if that was the case I mean one explanation for the mate attraction is if they're all jumping out the water it's a signal for them to be able to find these these massive aggregations because if you are then surrounded by hundreds if not thousands of other mobular rays there's more mate choice you have a greater selection of individuals so they think this leaping um out the water is they will be able to see that for a long long range so they use that to identify the big big so aggregation it's like a, it's like a beacon it's saying yeah. come over here there's lots and lots of mates yeah we that, should do that's that. what I'm suggesting. i know i would have our love lad so much yeah. <laughs> I would find that so useful. <laughs> but no, they're really, really um, fantastic. And I'd highly recommend it. I think it was in the latest, it was either the Planet Earth or the Blue Planet. Do you remember which one it was? Blue Planet 2. Yeah. I, say, I think. Yeah, so they have a scene of, of them in, in that. So um, you should definitely watch it. And just the noise, listen out for the noise because it sounds like a belly flop. Um, or if you're friends with Emma, wait till Christmas and she's in Mexico and you're in grey, miserable South London and you open all these Snapchats of her on a beach looking at these lovely rays flipping out the water and you're thinking, oh my God, I just, ah. <laughs> why am I in London? <laughs> Sorry, baby. <laughs> I, it was fine. <laughs> we can go back. We'll go back yeah. and look for Mobby the Rays. Yes, we'll put that on the diary after Gabon, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> yes, get to the end. Yeah. You want to talk about your awesome camel? I would love to talk about my awesome camel. Yeah. Oh, that sounds like an innuendo. Um, anyway, so this is actually, it's not so much a recent conservation thing, but it's something I read quite a while ago and I thought it was really interesting. So uh, it's in a paper in Natural Communications in 2019, and it was published by a paleontologist called Natalia Rubinsky. I think it's a Polish surname. Uh, I'm not that good on pronouncing them. So I th I'm just going to say Natalia Rubinsky, which is what I think it is. And it dates to uh, the mid Pliocene. Um, and it was found in Ellesmere Island in 2006, which is that massive island next to Greenland. So it's basically as far north as you can go before you like hit water. Um, and it lived at least 3.4 million years ago. So it's quite an old camel. Um, and they reckon it's related to Paracamelus, the ancestor of modern camels, and the Yukon giant camel. And all these intriguing names, so Paracamelus, Yukon giant camel, high arctic camel, got me down this massive camel tangent. Turns out North America used to be full of camels, um, which is crazy. <laughs> so, yeah, this is uh, what was a really nice find is because it's literally just a little bit of broken fib, fib, uh, tibia. But the presence of a fibular notch at the distal end of this bone shows that it was an artiodactyl. And then they used collagen fingerprinting to prove that it was a camel. So they really pulled out all the works 
on this tiny little bit of blip uh, bit of bone. Um, and so, yeah, it might seem strange to find a camel in the high Arctic of Canada, but it's actually stranger that there are no camels in North America now because the camelid family evolved in North America 45 million years ago. And until about 12,000 years ago, North America harbored the world's greatest diversity of camel species, which is crazy. Um, until the last ones were killed in the big Pleistocene megafaunal extinction, probably because of climate and anthropogenic factors left. Um, uh, and obviously only two modern camel lineages are left. The Eurasian lineage, which has the dromedary and the Bactrian, and the South American lineage, which has llamas, guanacos and vicuna. So this ancient camel is on the, kind of on the Eurasian side. Um, and why this is really interesting is because it's so far in the north, it's the first time camel has ever been discovered that far north. And that gives some really interesting implications for modern camels adaptations. So obviously modern camels have all these weird and swanky things like these weird like eyelashes and the humps and everything so they can live in like the cold or the hot um but Rybazinski the author actually posits that these traits evolved in North America in the Arctic and then were carried into Eurasia when the uh, the ancestor of the dromedary and the Bactrian migrated across into Europe um stuff like the low crown teeth and the fatty hump um uh what I thought was quite interesting just because I am a paleo nerd uh, is not something that was picked up in the paper, but it's a really ex interesting example of a North American native species migrating westward across Beringia from North America into Europe. Because most of the time we hear about European Eurasian species migrating east across Beringia into the Americas. So you had like the three, the three Proboscidean lineages, the mammoths, the mastodons, the gompatheres, um, cats, you had two pantheras, you had the cave lion and the American lion, two saber-toothed cats, dire wolves, they all went the other way. But this is like the first time I've ever come across something which, I'm, obviously there are, I'm sure there are more, a camel, a camel going the other way. What uh, would you think would be a, a reason for that? If, if all of them are going the other way, I, it's, there must yeah. be some, some adaptation or something. I don't know, maybe... I mean, because like Beringia wasn't a solid landmass all the time. A lot of the times they had to island hop when bits of it were submerged. So I guess maybe, maybe currents. I don't, I don't know. But then I, I can't imagine a, a camel, you know, swimming from Alaska to <laughs> Siberia. So yeah, it's really interesting. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, so that's the high Arctic camel. Um, there are a couple of honourable mentions as I started digging around the many and varied camels of North America, and some of them were heckin' massive. So Titanotylopus was 3.5 metres tall at the shoulder, which is as tall as an Asian elephant. Wow. Yeah, this is a big camel. Um, Megatylopus got even bigger. It was four metres at the shoulder, so it was taller than most elephants. I mean, camels are aggressive anyway, and they can spit at you and be quite nasty. So anything that was a four-meter camel would be terrifying, and I don't think I'd want to encounter one. I know. Imagine if you came across Megatylopus in a dark alley at night. You'd be, well, stuffed. Um, Paracamelus was not that big. It was the ancestor of the dromedary and the Bactrian, and it was the one that made the journey uh, across Beringia in the other way. Um, but the most important species is probably Camelops, which was the sister species of Paracamelus. So it was the 
closest extinct relation of our current camels. Uh, and it was the last camel in North America before they all got yeeted by paleo-American hunters and a changing climate, which is a shame. I want to go to America and see some heckin' big camels. <laughs> it is a shame. It really is a shame that they haven't been able to sort of survive in, in that area. Because um, I feel like now they're only in pockets yeah. sort of around the world and tend to be a lot drier climates. That's interesting. They used to be in colder um, yeah. kind of environments. So Canada was warmer at the time. It was probably like a boreal forest thing, like you get in, you know, northern Europe. Um, but yeah, still it would have been a, would have been pretty cold. So it's pretty cool that there was just a camel up there chilling. <laughs> I mean, yeah, camels, camels are awesome. Um, and <laughs> I didn't know, I didn't know that about the move. That's interesting. You're saying about the movement, um, sort of possibly in a different direction from from most of the others. Yeah, I smell a research project here. Why did they? It's a bit, it is a bit odd. Like camels came to Europe, but basically everything we think of as iconic Ice Age megafauna in America came from Europe. Mammoths, mastodons, big cats, wolves, I think bears. I think bears are a European thing. Now, this could be cool. You could do social networking a bit yeah. <laughs> and see where they came from and how they're linked to each other. That could be your research thing. I sense a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that is the high arctic camel. Would you like to take it away with our global conservation thing? Yeah, sounds good. So this kind of links on what we were saying we're talking about the documentary that we watched that was which was aired on Sunday um because they did touch on pangolins quite a lot that was one of the examples that they used that was threatened um so for those of you who haven't seen what a pangolin looks like they are just remarkable animals they look a little bit like walking pine cones um, <laughs> they are the only mammal to be completely covered in scales um, and they're different from from reptilian scales so that's why I said pine cone because kind of that it, they the scales look like the outer coating of a pine cone or like um, a really brown artichoke yes oh I like that <laughs> so, yeah they, they look kind of like walking artichokes I, I'll, I'll use that <laughs> and the reason they have these scales is to protect themselves from predators in the wild so what they do is they'll curl up into a very tight ball um, and then their tail has um, quite sharp scales, which they can use for defence. Um, and this is very effective against wild predators. So say the ones in Africa, if lions try to hunt them, they just get whacked in the face with a really sharp pangolin tail. And that usually <laughs> works. Um, but where this has come to their downfall is that this is what they do when they're threatened. They just curl up into a ball and they don't move. Yeah, and I do too. Yeah. <laughs> it works really well. <laughs> um, shame you don't have scales, that'd be awesome. Um, I've never had anyone say to me, a shame you don't have scales, but you know what, I'm going to take it as a compliment this time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, but a reason why that's been a problem is because they have been subject to the illegal wildlife trade um, quite severely um, in the past few decades. And it, it's very easy for poachers to just go up to them and scoop them up when, once they've located them because they just curl up into a ball. Um, and sort of some, I'll just 
got some figures here, which I was quite shocked by. They sort of mentioned them in, in the documentary. So the main kind of countries where pangolins are being exported to are China and Vietnam. And it was estimated that 100,000 pangolins are trafficked every single year um, to those countries. And so overall, this amounts to a million being trafficked in the last decade, which makes them the most trafficked animal in the world currently, Um, which is just shocking. And the, the main reason they're trafficked is not only for bushmeat, so their meat is eaten as a delicacy in some places, but it's also for the scales, um, which are believed to have medicinal properties. They think people think that it can cure cancer, it can cure asthma. I even read something how it um, promotes lactation. Like there's all these <laughs> unusual and there's no scientific proof to back this up. Um, it's the scales are made out of keratin um, so same thing as our fingernails and same thing as rhino horn so you could literally just chew your fingernails or like crush up your toenails in a pot whatever you want to do Ooh, that would have that would be the same as <laughs> pangolin scales so it's it's really sad that they've been subject to such sort of extreme measures for their scales. I guess this brings up, you know, a really kind of interesting issue, especially in the modern world, not just with wildlife conservation, but also with stuff like human rights, um, religious tolerance and stuff, is that at what point do traditions and cultures become harmful on a large scale? And at what point do you question that as an outsider to that culture? Yeah, no, that I think it's it's a very hard balance to reach because obviously, say in the traditional Chinese medicine, this has been something that has been used for probably hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And to tell them that it doesn't work, you you can't just go in there as an outsider and say you need to stop immediately. What you're doing is wrong, without giving them a justifiable reason. Mm-hmm. So I think communities who are involved in this are at the heart of that. And a lot of work that's being done by sort of conservation organisations is going to those target areas where they're being exported to and actually educating them and telling them how there may be alternatives to um, to pangolin scales and there's not a need um, need to, to ex- exploit them in that way. Um, And another concern recently was their link with COVID-19. Yeah, they brought that up in the in Attenborough's documentary, didn't they? Yeah, because it's still uncertain. So it was, let's see if I can find where I wrote about it. Um, I'm not sure. But anyway, it was that pangolins were found that they could harbour certain coronaviruses so when that came out that they they thought that interaction with pangolins and um humans and then bats as well was all kind of where the reservoir was coming from related to covid and so a lot of people were quite concerned actually that that would it it was kind of two different opinions about this either that they were going to be targeted massively and kind of just slaughtered to kind of eliminate the risk of covid 
but also the idea that maybe this could stop some of the wildlife trade to countries like China and Vietnam if people thought that there was a health risk associated. So it caused two really divided um, opinions on that. I remember we had a conversation about this. Uh, I think I was of the I think I was in the camp where perhaps optimistically and naively I hoped that it might have an impact on on illegal wildlife trade. Um, although I have to like listening to a lot of the studies which which are talking about all these animal reservoirs. Obviously, in wet markets in China, you have a load of people, a load of pangolins, and a load of bats. And if they only test wet market pangolins for coronavirus it might not necessarily mean that they're a natural reservoir of it. It might just mean in that market, because everything's got, got a coronavirus of some description, that sample may have it, I guess. I think that was that was something that came out of that just because of the nature of wet markets and the fact that you've got everything in such close proximity to each other. But um, there were actually some changes that came from China, whether this was a result of COVID or not, it's, it's unclear. But so, so this was June 2020, so June this year. So China increased the protection of the Chinese pangolin to the highest level. So what this means is it basically closed a loophole for the consumption of that species in country. So it's, they can now no longer consume the bush, bush meat from the Chinese pangolin. Um, and the government have also said they'll no longer allow the use of pangolin scales in Chinese medicine. So that was as of this year. So that, that is quite quite a positive change that, that has maybe come about because of this. Um, yeah, I guess we'll have to wait till, to see how well that is enforced. Um, but at least, that yeah, I mean, obviously change, as you mentioned, well, is probably going to be is probably going to come most effectively from grassroots working with the communities who have the supply. But I guess having the policy on the pangolin side as well is only ever a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And just just to recommend, there's a really good so talking about the grassroots kind of building up, working with local communities. It was part of the Wildlife Conservation Film Festival, and it was a documentary called Eye of the Pangolin, um, and it was filming the four African species of pangolin and the efforts that are in place to try and safeguard their future. So would really recommend you check that out because it has a lot of really, really good information about pangolin and, and the trade. Ooh, cool. Um, yeah. Do, so. do you want to go ahead with your yes. observation? So my news from the world of news is almost a year out of date now. But again, <laughs> it was a really cool article I saw. Uh, with about a very kind of current issue and I know a study on this is ongoing. So uh, last year in 11th of, well it was announced 11th November 2019 but I think it happened before that, uh, researchers have rediscovered a population of silver-backed chevrotane which is a species of mouse deer in Vietnam which had last been seen in 1990. Wow. Yeah that's pretty cool. Uh, and so this species, like um, it gained prominence because it was put on one of the 25 most wanted for in the Search for Lost Species Initiative, which is run by the Global Wildlife Conservation People Group. I don't know who they are. Well, I know who they are. I don't know what they call themselves. <laughs> Global Wildlife Conservation. Um, and so a associate conservation student uh, and field coordinator at the Leibniz Institute called Anne Nguyen, uh, led a search with camera traps in this part of Vietnam, which is being kept, I think, a secret at the moment to protect the species, which I think is great. Um, and yeah, so he led a camera trap project and he managed to get 2000 photos of this animal, 
pretty cool. Um, we love a camera trap. We do love a camera trap. Oh, we love a camera trap. Um, so yeah, that was good. And he did lots of interviews with wildlife rangers and local people. Uh, and he found out that one of the reasons it's been lost for so long is it's actually very confused with, very easily confused, I should say, with a, a, a its sister species, the lesser mouse deer, Tragulus canchil, which is much more common. Um, so now they're like, they're better aware of how to diagnose the species. Um, and, you know, his, his research found that the species is most threatened by bushmeat hunting, which is interesting because a lot of species, the key threat is actually not hunting, it's habitat destruction. Um, but in, in this instance, it is bushmeat hunting. Um, it's mainly not a commercial hunting endeavour. So I think it's the raglai people are the local people that, and they don't use guns and they've hunted it for centuries, but they use slings. And for the record, they're hunting an animal the size of a rabbit in the rainforest with a sling. So... How? Just how? That's I, quite impressive. It, yeah, regardless of the not, fact that they're not for, it, the, not for the Sheraton, but just the, that technique. I've never heard of that. Yeah, they have mad skills i guess um so their hunting is illegal as the area is protected but it's not on a large scale um i don't know i think there is a tendency in the conservation conversation at the moment to say that subsistence hunting is fine um i don't think that this is one of those cases just because we know nothing about this animal's population size and structure and its demography and it may well be that even small scale local consumption is uh not sustainable so we basically just don't know enough I think in order to legislate on this species. Um, the quick side note is that even though it's called a mouse deer it's not actually a deer and it's not in the family Cervidae, they're in their own family Tragulidae uh, and their own infra order Tragul Tragulina, 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 I don't know. One of the Tragulina. Tragulina, okay we'll go with Tragulina um, and all but one species are found in Asia uh, there is only one species in Africa, the water chevrotain, which is just found randomly in the middle of the Congo. So it's just chilling there. Um, and they're considered quite a basal lineage on the ungulate family tree. Uh, and they split from other lineages about 50 million years ago. So they've been doing their own thing for a while and they're chilling in the forest of Central Asia. And we just discovered a new one. So that's great. Yeah. And what I found interesting with what you're saying about kind of like the ancestors of, of that animal, the ungulate lineage, um, they were kind of saying how something that probably looked quite similar to that um, would have been the ancestor of modern whales, um, which <laughs> is another very cool lineage. So um, if its name's anything to go by, we should give the water chevrotain a, good, a chance and not hunt it because you never know in 50 million years time we might get new whales. <laughs> yes, just let it evolve. Just <laughs> do its thing. But it's interesting, like you're saying, I think we mentioned with the previous topic as well, just it's hard when you've got local communities who have been sort of have these certain behaviours or things that they've done and they think is a sustainable thing to do. It's like, when do you then go in and say, no, you can't hunt this silverbacked Sheraton because we, we don't know enough about it? Um, it's this conflict between local traditions and conservationists, which I think mm. is a, happens a lot. I mean, I, I, I certainly think conservationists shouldn't be afraid to say when some people's local traditions are harmful. Um, in the same way, we're more than happy to criticise the beliefs of other 
conservationists and Westerners, as sometimes we don't agree with them and we say they're harmful. Um, I do think we always should have an alternative solution to offer, especially because in the case of these people in Vietnam, the Raglai people, subsistence hunting is literally what they subside on. So if we if people go in and say, no, you can't hunt anymore, then they're going to be stuffed. Yeah, because they're not a largely agricultural community. They won't have anything else to eat. So I think when you do make that decision and say, look, you can't hunt this animal, it, you, I think you are obligated to provide a alternative and equally sustainable and equally, if not more so, profitable um, alternative for these people because you can't forget the human side to conservation. It's it's almost, I mean, it kind of is just as important as the wildlife side because with that, if you don't cater to both sides, you're never going to get a working solution. Yeah, no, so, so true. And I, they touch on that really well in the documentary as well with the gorillas. Mm. Um, so how that was completely a, a massive conflict between local people and the gorillas because they're basically their habitats are coming closer and closer into contact with each other there was this the, the people kind of saw the only way, way that they could make make money and sustain their family was through agricultural expansion of the land um and as soon as that changed and gorillas became sort of a massive part of the ecotourism industry and people were paying um to, to go see them that created new jobs so it was rangers um, guides, people in the tourism industry, it completely changed their their behaviours. But like you said, they needed that alternative um, to make to make that that change. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's so complicated. <laughs> it really is. Um, if you want a not complicated career, don't go into conservation. Yeah, no, that is a good advice. I think. Yeah. <laughs> So I think that's a nice place to segue into the final bit we're going to talk about, uh, which is curlews in the UK. Yep. So curlews, um, for those of you who haven't seen a curlew before, they are really, really wonderful birds. I feel like I say that about every animal. But, you um, do. <laughs> <laughs> they have their um, Europe's largest wading bird. Um, and they have this long down curved bill, really long legs and this distinctive call. I'm just going to play you a little bit of it just because it sounds oh, amazing. Yes. I'm so excited. I love curly so much. So, yeah, <laughs> it's just such a fantastic call. And I think why it's so powerful is because it's it's very distinctive and people recognize it and a lot of people say in our parents generation or grandparents generation said they grew up hearing it a lot and now the call has kind of disappeared um which is yeah really sad we watched that documentary didn't we um song of the curlew i think it was called it was keeper of the call keeper of the call maybe i'm thinking no i'm thinking of song of the song oh. of that was the whale one. Is it the whales? Oh, maybe it was song of the yeah. Okay, keeper of the call. I got that wrong. But yeah, so this was part of the Wilderland Film Festival, um, by Billy Clapham, um, and it was about a farmer working with curly conservationists trying to save the curlews on his land, and it was really, really powerful, really sad. It just was quite sad, yeah. Seeing how they're disappearing. 
Um, so do you want to say a bit like what, like what is the issue with, with curlies? Why, why are they disappearing? Curlies are declining in the UK. The curly we have in the UK is the Eurasian curly. There are nine species of curlew uh, across the world. Um, and the Eurasian curlew is actually, I think, the second largest. Um, and it's in the family, if anyone wants a cheeky Latin name, Scolopacidae, if anyone enjoys a Latin name as much as I do. Um, so. I hope we have some Latin name enthusiasts as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, so they are spread across, this species is spread across Eurasia, um, year round in Europe, uh, summering, some in parts of India and some in uh, parts of Southern Europe. Uh, so it is a migratory species. It is declining in the UK, um, as I understand it, due to the draining and conversion of farmland, uh, which is where it nests. So it nests in uh, natural, naturally it would nest in kind of tall grass meadows um, and it makes a kind of scrape in the ground, sits on the eggs, defends them, and then the young curlews are raised in that nest. So it's not like most birds where it will build a nest in a tree, it's a ground-based um, nester. And obviously in the UK, as most almost all of our landscape is is now being um, uh, man-modified uh, for agriculture, um, it used to nest in uh, fields. And this was originally for, for some time okay for the species, um, but when we started implementing the use of massive combine harvesters to harvest, and um, I think the use of pesticides in fields as well, um, is, is basically, in the UK at least, driven this species pretty close to the brink of breeding extinction at least. Um, so I was very lucky when I went down to Wales recently in a place called Carew, um, on the estuary there were two breeding curlews, so it was a male and a female, and then when I went back the next day I saw mum and dad and two immature um, individuals. So I think there's at least two in Carew, in, in the fields around the river breeding, so I have logged them with the uh, appropriate wildlife authority. So they know that. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Really fantastic that you got to see that, and especially the chicks as well. Um, because, like you were saying, it's they they're threatened by a lot of anthropogenic factors, especially related to farming, and they're quite they have quite a poor breeding success anyway for birds. So for you to see two chicks, um, the idea that they're possibly replacing themselves into future generations um, is, is a very positive thing. And I know there's some, been some really, really good work um, to try and boost curlew numbers. So actually hand rearing the chicks, I think is one of the things that they do, getting, to, getting them to the stage where they're old enough to fend for themselves and then um, releasing them to try and boost numbers. Um, I, think, I think one thing to note for people who haven't seen a curlew is not only is it the largest wader in its range, um, but its most distinguishing feature is its bill, which is this massive, long, scythe-like thing, obviously where most bills are off the end of a bird's face. Um, but yeah, it's incredibly long. You can't really mistake it. It's bigger than other waders, and it's got this massive, massive bill, which I think is six times the length of its skull. Wow. And it is one of only a few birds with such an impressive bill. I think it's not the, it doesn't, its bill isn't longer than its body. I think that distinction only goes to the sword-billed hummingbird, but the Eurasian curlew gets pretty damn close. And it is just impressive because you'll find them on these kind of muddy estuarine um, environments and they'll just be there sort of 
bobbing their head up and down, kind of looking for things like worms, shellfish, shrimp. Um, you can't miss them. They're, <laughs> they're really quite distinctive, especially with that, that bill. Um, the, the bill is actually what gives them their genus name. So their genus name is Numenius, which appears to come, there's a bit of debate of this, from the ancient Greek from neos, meaning new, and mean, meaning moon, referring to the crescent shape of the bill, which I think is really, really cool. The species name is Arquata, which is also a reference to its bill, uh, and I think it's Latin for meaning bow-shaped. So its its name literally means crescent-shaped bill, bow-shaped bill. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is great, and it just, yeah, it does describe it really, really well. Um, and I don't know, we have been, we were quite moved when, obviously, we saw that documentary and kind of the more we read about curly numbers declining, um, but kind of maybe to end on like a positive note saying that there are some fantastic um, kind of conservation initiatives which are being put in place to try and boost these curly numbers up, um, which is which is a positive. Um, it, it would be so nice if, if they could, their numbers could come back up and people could hear the amazing, amazing call of the curlew and get to see them. I think, I think the population has declined by, I think, more than 50% in England and more than 80% in Wales. But the uh, Welsh Wildlife Trust released 32 fully fledged baby curlews back into the wild this year at the end of this breeding season. So that's a bonus. And hopefully those 32 will go off and find husbands and wives and have a whole new lot of curlews. Yeah, that would be that would be fantastic. And I think there's been more um, awareness about curlews recently. So you've got young kids now who are going out looking for them. Um, you've got um, conservationists, people going out. There is this, I don't know if hype is the right word, but because they're so, um, such interesting, amazing, amazing birds, you have got a lot more people interested in them now, which is, which is always good. I think hype is absolutely the right word. Curly hype, it's got me. It's a curly hype. If it's train, then we're we're, we're on the curly train. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think that is a uh, positive place to end it. So thank you very much for tuning in. Oh, I sound like a radio host. I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, and we'll keep an eye out for the next for episode three of Zoology Ramblings with Roby and Emma. I don't know what I'm going to talk about yet, but do you know? Do you have any idea? I I don't. <laughs> I have to see. I'm going to I'm going to mull um, on when I'm going to mull tomorrow. So I might do something on white-tailed sea eagles when I come back. That would be good. Yeah. So there might be a little break in the podcast just because Emma is away and I will not be, but I'll I don't know do something. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, see everyone later. Bye. Yeah. See you next time.